Well, let me pray and we'll jump back into the existence of God. And then we have a bit to talk about with the names of God. So we're finishing the existence of God class and then going into the names of God. Lord, we pray to you this morning that we could understand you better, that we could learn more about you, that this morning we could just get a sense of, of what your names are about, Lord, how they teach us and reveal things about you. Help us to defend the truth of your word rightly and always seek to go there and not to other places. Lord, you've given us everything we need in scripture for faith and for practice. And help us to realize that, to know it well, to understand theology. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at the classical proofs of God. These are not the best way to defend the existence of God. The Bible says everyone already knows God exists. They know it in their hearts. They know it because of creation. They know it because God put it in their hearts to know it. And so we really don't need to prove people to, to people that God exists. We need to get down to the core issue, which is a sin problem. It's a heart problem. It's not wanting to believe in God because that helps justify our sin, but that doesn't matter. God still exists. So you can't wipe God's existence off the map. We were looking at other ways, though, that people have proven that God exists. This is called classical apologetics. Uh, Some people that we we love and and often read about have followed this path in apologetics, though, and that's uh, R.C. Sproul would be the, the most famous, Gerstner and others. They seek to first prove that God exists through a more neutral ground, they call it, a neutral ground, using reason, sometimes science. It's really philosophy. These are philosophical arguments. They don't, the better of them don't try to hide that. These are philosophical arguments, reasoned arguments from the mind, and they attempt to show that Christianity is is then consistent with science if they go that far. So the first step, get somebody to believe there is a God based on something outside the Bible, then bring them to the gospel, which is in the Bible, of course, so they can come to Christ. So it's a two-step process, as opposed to just giving them the Bible, because they already know there is a God, so let's get to the issue. God created you, you've disobeyed, you've broken his commands, Christ has come to save you from the eternal punishment of breaking those commands, and so on. We can go to scripture verses for that. So here they are, we, we briefly previewed them last week cosmological argument. This is probably the most common one that you've heard of. Where did everything come from? And it's not wrong for us to use necessarily this question to get people thinking. But the idea that somebody doesn't believe in God and suddenly they're going to say, oh yeah, you're right. Where does all this come from? I suddenly believe in God. It doesn't work like that. People have a hardened heart. It's not about apprehension in the mind. It's, It's about the issue of the heart. So the cosmological argument speaks of the cosmos. Where does all this come from? This is an ancient Greek argument that the Greeks use to speak of God. And who or what caused all this? Again, a good question to get people reasoning and thinking. But we're going to see it doesn't go far enough. There's also the teleological argument. This was really pushed forward by Aristotle. And where did all this beauty come from? Both of these were really, Aristotle wrote a lot on this in ancient Greece. Where did all this beauty come from? That's the teleos, the the purpose, the telos, the end for which God created the world. What is its purpose? How could these things be so beautiful and intricate if there's not a God? And they must be working towards a common purpose. 
And so you'll hear of Aristotle talking about the, the prime mover or the first cause. That's dealing with these arguments. There there's, must be a first cause if you trace everything back. There must be a primary mover. There must be somebody, an architect, who designed this for a reason. And the Bible does talk about these things, slightly different categories, but especially purpose. Why did God create the world? To glorify himself. Why did God create the universe? But again, Romans 1 says everyone already knows this. In fact, the problem isn't that they don't know it, but that they don't recognize God for who he is and glorify him. They don't truly want to give thanks to him and glorify him. So those are the most common ones. The next one gets very philosophical, and you can always have fun with this one, trying to get your mind around it. If we can conceive of the greatest possible being, then it must exist. So in other words, if we have the ability to conceive of something really great like God, then he must exist because he made us so that we could indeed conceive of something so great. That's a really simplistic way of putting it. It's much more complex than that. But philosophers love to talk about this one. Ontology deals with being. So cosmos, that's creation, that's the universe. Telios, that's the purpose or the goal. And ontology is the study of being. And this is just talking about what exists. There must be some great being if we can think of such a thing. And then lastly, the moral proof. All people recognize some sense of right and wrong. How do we know what evil is? Why do we fear death, judgment, etc.? So this one's actually the best of the four because it gets the closest to where the Bible goes. That everybody knows right and from wrong. We all have a conscience. And yet the conscience will testify against us in the judgment if we don't believe in Christ. Testifying that we indeed are sinners and it, it pricked us whenever we sinned. And yet we did not turn from our ways. So those are the four proofs. Now let's look at some of the objections here. The cosmological proof, it only proves the first cause. Nothing more. All people around the world already believe in God, so what have you accomplished by proving that there was a first cause somewhere? Teleological proof only proves a world shaper, which fits many religions' supreme being. Okay, you got somebody, maybe through reasoning, to admit what they already believe in their heart, which is that there is a first cause. What God is that? Is that the God of the Greeks, the Romans? Which of the gods? God of the Hindus? The God of the American Indians? The great spirit in the sky? I mean, what exactly are we talking about? It's the same with the supreme being uh, that shaped the world for a purpose. I know a lot of apologetics is spent trying to handle these questions. Uh, I think we need to know our Bibles better, though. These are really good for Christians to think through. This is great. But as far as convincing somebody who's an atheist of God's existence, uh, this doesn't go far enough. Ontological proof. Many things exist. But the question is, what is it that exists? What is it that exists? You know, just because I can conceive of something, people conceive of all kinds of things today that don't actually exist. That's one problem with this. But more to the point here, who is this God that exists? The Bible calls us to have a relationship with Him and how we understand Him, to fear Him, to have a, a zeal of faith for Him. The, the ontological proof doesn't get us anywhere. Even though the guy who developed it, Anselm, the guy who wrote about it, wrote this wonderful treatise on substitutionary atonement. When he wrote his more philosophical works, though, he was trying here to 
to convince an atheist or an unbeliever. They didn't really have atheists in the Middle Ages, but somebody who denied God in another religion. The moral proof. While this is the best of the proofs, many will say morality exists to further evolutionary causes or to further evolution. So, yes, the Bible does tell us there is sin and there is righteousness. So this is the best of the four. And if you do it in a biblical way, this is a really good one. You can just ask them, where does right and wrong come from? And then try to get to Scripture as soon as possible, of course. But they will typically say, if they're evolutionary atheists, they will say, well, more proof comes, uh, or right and wrong comes from the evolutionary process. To do right things helps to uh, keep the species going and so on. So get to Scripture as soon as you can. Here's six more weaknesses here of the classical proofs. They lack the fact that sin has had a negative effect on the unbeliever's heart and mind. So this classical system of, of proving God's existence is one that says we're both of clear mind here. We both have an unaffected heart and mind. And so I can reason with you on the same level. Anybody who's really talked to an ardent unbeliever, atheist, knows this isn't going to work. Because what do they say? It doesn't matter what you say, they're not going to believe it. Their heart is hardened. Their mind is affected. Just read Romans 1 and 2 and 3. This method, number two, focuses on the mental. But what's unbelief? It is a heart issue. A heart issue. And so while they knew that God existed because he made it evident to them, they turned to other gods. They turned to created things. They set aside the creator and worshipped man-made images and crocodile images and bugs and, and things like that. Uh, that's a heart issue. That's not a mind issue. We have to get away from this idea that people don't believe because they're just not educated enough. All right, that's the government's idea. We need to educate people more and that'll solve all of our issues. We know that it's a heart issue. Sin is a heart issue. And just giving people more education in their mind isn't going to fix all the sin problems. While education can be helpful, it's not going to fix the heart. That's the gospel. The Word of God is not present in this apologetic method. I could argue all four of those proofs and never bring up a Bible verse. In fact, that's the point, right? They don't accept the Bible. You've got to come to them on their neutral ground. It's really their ground because they're going to think they have all the science and everything to back it up. And you're going to try to reason with them even though they have a, a mind that's depraved. Number four, it appeals to reason apart from the Bible to set up man's reason as the ultimate judge. So this is a big one. It's asking the unbeliever to make kind of the final decision on what is true. And it's saying, let's set aside the Bible because you don't accept it as true. Let's throw that thing aside. And now let's focus on what you'll accept. Because it's what you accept, unbeliever, that really matters. So let's get out these other things, philosophy or science or so on. Number five, even when it comes to proving God's existence, these classical apologetics can only speak of the probability. And they admit this. It's only getting the person to admit there's a probability, there's a likelihood that God is real or that Christianity exists or Christ, you know, was the Savior. It's, it's just likely. It's probable. In fact, if you listen to a guy named William Lane Craig, he talks a lot about this. He says, well, I can never say with certainty, you know, that anything is 100% certain. It's just probable. And he has a lot of her heretical beliefs, too, so I'm not recommending you listen to him. Number six, 
I've already said this many times. Man already knows in his heart that there is a God. So proving that there is a God is only trying to convince them of what they already know. Yes, I know we have to remind people often. We have to remind our kids the same thing over and over. But again, their problem, even with your child, that you have to remind over and over is a lack of heart obedience, right? Not a lack of understanding what it means to take out the trash. They just don't care. And that's why they're not doing it. Yes, they could forget, but no one forgets there is a God. God put it there. They're without excuse. That's what it means to be without excuse. That's what God is saying in Romans 1, that everyone knows there's a God, so no one can claim, I didn't know there was a God. What am I doing in hell, God? I, I didn't know there was one. God says, no, you know that there is one. You don't need a Bible to know there's a God. You don't need philosophical arguments to know there's a God. Everyone knows there's a God. Here's what Calvin, he, he talks about this spectacles that we need. He says, just as old and bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, you can scarcely construe two words. But with the aid of spectacles you will begin to read distinctly. So scripture gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. So what happens is, as an unbeliever, everything just really blurry in the Bible, right? We can read it and kind of make sense of it, but it's not, not, not to a saving or sanctifying way. It's just very blurry to us. It's just a bunch of facts. It's just another book. Suddenly when we have the Spirit, that's like putting glasses on, right? Goggles on or what we would call today just reading glasses, suddenly it's clear. Suddenly we can make out the words and we begin to understand things we didn't understand before and it affects our heart and it affects our life, it affects our minds. That's a famous description here. He also uses this idea of spectacles one other time in his theology book. Here's Herman Bavink. He really critiqued this as well. This was in the early 1900s. Theolo apologetics at that time had been really about these classical proofs. And he says, apologetics, as it has often been practiced, was mistaken, however, in that, now he lists the mistakes. It detached itself from the Christian faith and thus put itself outside of, above, and before theology. That's this idea of let's set aside what the Bible has to say and let's come to some so-called neutral place and then talk in that realm. Or you just set aside the sword of the Spirit, your best weapon. Your best defense. Spurgeon talked about letting the lion out of the cage. That's what the Bible is. Just let the lion out. He'll defend himself. But you put the lion in the cage and then you have to defend it. Just let the lion out of the cage. Number two, it's so separated believing from knowing that religious truth came to rest in part or in total on purely intellectual proofs. If you think about the major issue today with Christianity, one of them, I'll just say, is that people think knowing that Jesus existed is the same thing as believing that Jesus existed. In fact, if you grew up in the South, you probably were one of these people, and there's a lot of them still around today. Well, I, I, yeah, I believe Jesus lived, and he died, and he was died on the cross. He was even raised from the dead. Yeah, you know that that's the truth about history, but have you put your faith in him? See, that's something different. That's, that's a hard issue not just a mind issue. Number three, as a result, it began to foster exaggerated expectations from its scientific labor, as though by the intellect it could change the human heart and by reasoning engender piety. So as somehow just learning more about God will somehow make you more holy in the realm outside of Scripture. 
and, and especially science. Now, science is a, a right and good labor as we discover things about God as, as Christians. We learn about these things and we marvel at God just like we marvel at those stars that I put up last week that are in the background here, this M92 cluster. That's wonderful. But if we expect that an unbeliever is just going to look up, see the stars and say, of course there's a God. Of course I love Christ. Of course I'm saved. That's not how God works. He works through his word, through his word. In ancient times, he, he directly spoke to people. And today it's all revealed there in the Bible. And so to try to take it outside of the realm of Scripture is really just having a, some sort of mental argument, debate with somebody. I mean, it's fun. We can go into philosophical details or compare how many studies have been done, you know, and talk about physics and so on. But at the end of the day, you're just beating your head against the wall. Get the sword of the Spirit out and let God's Word do its work. If you want to bring up some of these other things, that's fine. How do we know right and wrong? The person can't give an answer or it's a bad answer, then you just get it out and say, here's what Romans 2 says, that God gave us a conscience, that God put a, a law of the heart in us, a law in our heart to know right from wrong. Even the Gentiles who did not have the scriptures knew the law that God put in their heart, the natural law. This comes up a lot, by the way. What, what do you say to an, an unbeliever who says, you know, gay marriage is fine. Who are you Christians to say it's not? We're not a Christian nation. We don't follow the Bible. Where are you going to go with that? I mean, you can go to natural law and you can say it's, it's not even a natural thing. But they're just going to say, well, look at these studies of these bugs and look at these animals and look at what we've done with this one little bug who had a homosexual relationship. I mean, it's just, it gets silly, right? That's what they do. It really is. They'll find one pair that they put in a zoo somewhere and try to show that it's natural. Okay, enough on that. The names of God. Any questions on philosophical proofs? You don't have to take my word for it. You can get, you can get, we don't carry these apologetics books in the bookstore, but you can get Sproul's book and see what his arguments are. I think they're fun mental exercise. I think it's good to think through them. They're really good for Christians. You know, educate your kids or you're educating yourself on God's uh, magnificent ways that he's created or designed things. Intelligent design. I love to watch those videos where they show all these animals and how intricate the eye is. and This, this tongue that wraps around the skull of one of these woodpeckers. I mean, that's amazing. But all it does is make the believer love the Lord even more and the unbeliever just say, well, that's evolution. Names of God. You have a name. I have a name. Today, our names don't always mean anything. Our parents just like the name and so they, they gave us a name. Sometimes it means something. You have names that have been passed down through your family. You have the third or, or junior or senior or so on. So those have some meaning. We don't tie though a lot of meaning to names except when we're looking up our kids, our future kids names, right? You, well, what does that name mean before I name my kid that? And sometimes parents don't look up those words. And I remember meeting a, a Mormon guy and his kid was named Ammon from the Ammonites. And he should have known better as a Mormon, but I don't know. Maybe that's one of your future children or, or grandchildren's names. So. so what is a name? Well, one of the ways God reveals himself through his name in Scripture is telling us exactly what those names are. And sometimes they're titles that we think of as names. Really, God only has one name. The rest are titles which basically become his name. And it's similar with Jesus as well. 
So here's our textbook, Biblical Doctrine in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. A person's name was important because the lexical meaning of the name reflected or was hoped to reflect something about the person. You know, when, when, when they're told to name their children, you know, not my people. And, and I forget, Isaiah's got this long name. He's supposed to name his son. And then there's the, the baby that comes out and then the mom dies and they name it after the death, you know, or whatever happened with the mom. Those were reflecting what occurred at the birth or what occurred right before the birth with the prophets, for example, or what was going to happen to Israel after that person was born. But usually the parents would choose a name, especially in the Old Testament, a name that reflected what they hoped for the person. And so you have Joshua, Yahweh saves. And you have names in the Old Testament that reflect either what they hope is going to happen or what has happened, right? What is it? Moses, Moshe, is, is that water or drawn out of the water? Because he was found in the water. So that points back to his history. Let's look at the name of God here in Malachi 1. It's at the end of the Old Testament, and we're looking at how the nation of Israel is doing here. And they're not doing very well right before a gap in prophecy of about 400 years. And then the New Testament will come. In Malachi 1, 6, here's how the book starts off. A son honors his father and a slave his master. This is God speaking through his prophet Malachi. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is the fear of me? So they don't fear Yahweh. That's the problem. Says Yahweh of hosts to you. So anytime you see Yahweh of hosts, that we'll look at this name in a minute, but that has to do with God's power and might and his massive army of angels. So when you see Yahweh of hosts, that's a way of saying God is powerful and he's going to judge and he's not just going to wink at sin and he's going to wipe out anybody who doesn't fear him in the right way. So here we get the sense of who Malachi is written to. Oh, priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So one of the big issues is they've despised God's name. But they, they throw out this excuse, right? Oh, how have we done that? That's not fair, God. You're telling us we despise your name. And then he answers, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say the table of Yahweh is to be despised. So it's not just take the Lord's name in vain when you, when you say something wrong about God. But also anything associated with the true God. When, when somebody says that a true church who preaches the gospel and preaches the Bible is a false church. In a sense, that's laying a false claim on God's name. When somebody says something about a Christian, they're hating a Christian, they're despising, they're mocking, persecuting. What did Jesus say? It's not actually just you. It's me that they're persecuting. That's what he said to Paul, right? Why are you kicking against the goads and hurting my people? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, I'm not persecuting you. What are you talking about? Yeah, he's going after Christians and killing them. So in this case, it's the temple. It's where they sacrifice. It's the table, the showbread. All these things are despised. Now skip down to verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So God's going to take his name out to all the peoples. So this comes at the end of the Old Testament. We've already seen prophecies of this previously, but that's going to be the case with the gospel going out to the world. And every place incense is going to be presented to my name. 
as well as grain offering that is clean. For my name will be great among the nations. God is concerned about his name. Again, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it. In that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, behold, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says Yahweh of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I accept that from your hands, says Yahweh? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am great, a great king, says Yahweh of hosts. My name is feared among the nations. So right there, he's already giving us lots of names and titles, isn't he? Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts, king. And he says that his name will be feared among the nations. They're not fearing his name. They're making excuses. See, they probably said, well, we worship you. We go up to the temple. You know, we go, people today might say, well, I go to church. I listen to the sermon. I sing the songs. That's what they were saying. But they were really despising God through their actions, through how they lived. They were doing all these sinful things. And that's where the rest of Malachi goes. So God cares about his name. We need to know his names and we need to respect them. And we need to not take the Lord's name in vain. We need to not say things about God that aren't true. That's what it means to take the, the Lord's name in vain. Yes, cussing with the Lord's name is a sin too. But really, anything you say about God that's wrong is taking his name in vain. And any promises you make that then you break because you use the Lord in that promise, that's taking his name in vain as well. That's why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop trying to swear on the temple and swear on the stone and swear on the foundation and swear on the altar. Just be truthful all the time. You know, it's like sometimes my kids will say, to be honest, dad. And I say, are you not normally honest? Why are you saying this time? To be honest. We do that too, don't we? We need to stop doing that and just always be truthful. All right, so general principles about names and titles. These come from a seminary lecture that Dr. Mook does at TMS. And these are just, get the idea of what is in a name. A title can become so much associated with the person that it becomes a personal name, such as God, which is really a title, speaking of something or someone, Lord, King, Christ in the New Testament. Christ is a title. That means Messiah. It has to do with the promised King in the Old Testament who would come and reign over Israel and reign over the whole world. And so, that's a title, but it becomes so associated even before we get out of the New Testament with Jesus that it's almost like a last name or two names side by side. One speaking of more of his Jesus being his, his human name and then uh, Christ reflecting his divinity. And so we put those together and Paul's using Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus quite often. So the lexical meaning is foundational. You know what the lexical meaning is? Lexical meaning is when you look it up in the dictionary. So Let's say in this case, you were going to look up one of the, the names of God. Well, that's, that's foundational. That's the basis of the word. But it's not the full meaning of a person's name. So we're going to see that with some of the titles of God. Because some of them can be used for false gods. A Lord can be used, you know, just in our English history. Lord can be a, a ruler of a manor. Or one of those people in parliament in England today. They have many lords. Does that mean there's lots of little gods walking around parliament? No, it's a, it's a title of honor, respect, master is the idea there. So 
If you just look up Lord, there's lots of people called Lord in the Bible. Baal is called Lord. That's what actually Baal means. Lord of the skies or thunder, something like that. That's not the full meaning of the word Lord. You have to take it in context now. So this is basic hermeneutics, but what is it in context? Lord God. Okay, that's saying Master God. Lord Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate king and ultimate master. I think we know this if we stop and think about it. The same as king and so on. Clustered names and titles co-qualify each other, which means they modify each other. If you have a long list of names, that's pretty exciting anyway in Scripture, right? Uh, Yahweh, God Almighty, Yahweh of hosts. So that's a, a long line of titles and names, and they qualify each other. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to focus on, you know, Almighty and, and to the extent of the others. No, they're all interacting there in that sentence, especially if they're used with commas and our translations to describe God. There's a symbiotic relationship between the name, title, and its context. So they go together. Don't ever pull things out of context. Basic hermeneutics again. Context is king. You can't take things out of context. People come up with all kinds of weird theological things by pulling God's names or anything out of context. People do this weird thing today on YouTube. Don't go watch it. It's a waste of your time. But they'll, they'll put these Hebrew letters up and then they'll, they'll pull out one letter from this word and one letter from this word and one letter from this word and look. You've got, you know, Yahweh in a place that you normally wouldn't expect it. It's like the, the Bible, what's that, the Bible code? Anybody see those books? Before I was a Christian, I used to think, oh, the Bible code. I mean, that's, that's some secrets. You know, it's a crossword puzzle. You line up the text and then you start circling words. People do that with the Bible sometimes. It's taking it out of context. There's not some hidden code in there. There's not. It's meant for us to study and learn what it means. Why would there be a hidden code? But that sells lots of books and movies and so on. A person's names, titles are unique to that person. They're unique to that person, used in context, of course. We're going to see that some of God's titles can be used in other situations. But if you take them all together, especially, there's no one else in all of Scripture or human history that has all of those titles. The meaning of the name and title is invested by the bearer of the name. This is especially important when it comes to God. Who gets to tell us what God's names mean? God. We don't get to tell God what his name means, right? And, and you're, you, when you are talking to somebody else, if, if this comes up, I mean, you're the final determiner on what your name means. Your parents probably would have a say maybe in that too, but this is especially important in the Bible. And the meaning of a person's name, title, changes as characteristics or status change. So this doesn't mean, in God's case, that he changes. It means we learn more about God as we go through the Bible. So we, what we see is we see additional names, or we see a fuller sense of the name that was previously mentioned. We'll see that with Yahweh in a minute. When he was revealed to, as Yahweh to Abraham, it was not in the same way that he revealed himself to Moses. And even later, we learn more about God. And we get to the New Testament, and we learn more. And we learn about the Trinity. And we learn about all these other names in relationship to Christ or Jesus that were not there in the Old Testament, or they were there in a seed form, or they were there but not understood properly until we have the New Testament. Okay, the first one, the most commonly used one, Yahweh. Does anybody know what that Hebrew says over there? 
Yahweh. It's a trick question. Y'all, y'all should know me by now. Actually, it's Y-H-W-H. And so there's a big debate on how you say that. And I'll, I'll talk about Jehovah in a minute. But there's a big debate on this because you don't have vowels in Hebrew. So the Hebrew letters up there don't have any vowels. Those are just consonants. And there's many reasons that's the case. Mainly to just save space. And anybody who saw those letters would know in their mind the word that it was. This is difficult in Hebrew sometimes because two words have the same consonants. And so what are they? Uh, Later, they put vowels, the little dots and stuff below the letters. But this is much later. This is after Moses wrote, after all the books of the Old Testament were completed. After Christ even, they decided to make sure the Hebrew people could continue to read the scriptures rightly. They put the Masoretes, put these little dots and markings below to tell us, how to say the word with the vowels. But Yahweh, by the time they did that, had already had this tradition around his name. And so the vowel markings are a little bit different. So Yahweh is the best that scholarship can offer us on how to say his name. Some people get really upset about this, though. and Even um, non-Jewish, you know, Gentile Christians, for example, get really upset and say, that's not right. Shouldn't say that. You should just say Y-H-W-H. Well, that, that's not literally what they said back then. Right? They said the name with the vowels. So we're going with Yahweh. Uh, we use the LSB here. Someday we'll get pew Bibles that are LSB. But uh, the LSB transla- translates Yahweh literally. And you can see it 6,800 plus times. Some of these are compounds. Some of these are shortened form. Just Yah. It was fun reading through the Psalms with y'all. And, and scripture reading part of our service. And uh, the Psalm would just say, praise Yah. And I can imagine all the visitors were thinking, you know, maybe I was just saying, yeah, yeah, and not actually using God's name. So I, our regular, our members probably got tired of me saying, this is the covenant name of God. I'm going to be reading from the LSB. But I think by the time we were done with the Psalms, we understood Yah and Yahweh. And then names also, prophets would be named, people would be named with a shortened form of God at the end, Yah. So 6,800 times, that's a lot. Do you think that's important? Do you think God wanted his people to know his name? Now, it was revealed to Abraham briefly. There was not a lot of explanation to Abraham. I don't think Abraham understood what God would later reveal to Moses about his name. And God says that basically to Moses. Let's go to Genesis now. And in 426, that's before Abraham even. And to Seth, to him also, a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, Moses is writing this many, many, many centuries later. Not millions of years, centuries. And he could put in there the name of God that he learned later. He could say, well, they were worshiping the true God, and that's Yahweh, and just shorten it like this. Uh, I think because they're calling upon the name of Yahweh here, they they know the name of their God. Because the idea here is that the line of Cain had gone away from God, but the line of Seth was, was faithful So they called upon the name of the true God, Yahweh. Now let's go to 14.22. By the way, Noah is the same. He calls upon the name of Yahweh. And 14.22. I didn't put all the references in here. Just a few to look at. Then Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So I don't think this is Moses just inserting the true name of God back in the history. This is quoting Basically, Abram's words. And so he, Abraham, knew the name. 
He knew that this is the God, the God who created everything, and he's the God most high above all the other false gods. This is the God most high. So here we have basically two names, and then God most high is kind of a combination name we'll look at in a minute, El Elyon. But you see that Abraham knew Yahweh and even spoke to the king of Sodom, this name. And then 2133, And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. So again, two, two names there, really. One's a compound name, the everlasting God. So he knew Yahweh. He knew the name. Whether he knew exactly what it meant, probably not in much detail because of what's said in Exodus 6.3. So let's look at this. This is foundational to understanding Yahweh. This is God speaking and I appeared. He's talking here to Moses. God spoke further to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. God the Powerful. El Shaddai. But my name, Yahweh, by that name, I was not known to them. So how does that then fit with what we just saw in Genesis? And some very conservative scholars will just say, well, when every time we see Yahweh in Genesis, that's Moses just putting in Yahweh's name because he's writing this and he knows the true name of Yahweh. I think that's a difficult interpretation because Moses is quoting some things that Abraham said. And who's telling him what Abraham said? Well, Moses wasn't alive back then. So God is telling him, here's what, here's what Abraham said. Write it down, you know, in Genesis. So I think they did know the name of Yahweh, but not in its fullest sense. I think Exodus 6.3 is saying, I'm going to reveal more to you, Moses, and to Israel. I'm going to reveal more about my name and what that says about me and all the, the attributes that we then, then see in Exodus, which would be there in, of course, Genesis, but not as easily seen. So where do we get the name Yahweh? Well, it's connected to the verb. That should be in italics, not ha-ha. That's, that's, well, some people say it's kaha, but that is totally a, what is that, autocorrect? Autocorrect just is getting me lately. Haya. Now, your book says kaya or kava. I don't know. I think that may be the modern pronunciation. I don't know. Where's our Greek scholars over here? We got Terry and Frank here. Why does the textbook say ka with a, with a chayth? It's kind of weird. Anyway, haya. Haya is a verb, and it means to become or to be. Exist, it talks about existence. It's... It's to be. And this is closely associated with God in Exodus 3.14. There's so much about God's names in Exodus and his attributes. You know, we read through Exodus and we just think, oh, this is a boring book. About, you know, once you get out of chapter 12, they're, they're going through the wilderness and they got all these tabernacle things. And, no, this reveals a lot about God. This is his people. He's redeemed them. He wants them to know who he is. Yes, he gives instructions about the tabernacle and how to travel and so on. And in the Ten Commandments. But he reveals a lot. Look at, as we go through today, how many times Exodus is a reference for the names of God. So 3.14, we've got the, the burning bush, which is Yahweh speaking. Also, the angel of Yahweh. We'll leave that for another class. But, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, that, that is the verb there. And it's 
I am. I, I exist. We, we have a hard time saying it in English, but it would be something like, I am being, I am being. Right? I am, I exist, who I exist. It's just strange to us in English, but think about that. God is talking about who he is, his eternal existence, his independence, his aseity. There's so much built into this right here. That's the verb, hayah. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So there, the, the verb is used in, in the place of God's name. This, this is the God they are to worship. Because Moses wants to know, who should I tell them has sent me? And, and God says, I, I am. That's good enough. I exist. Which means the other gods don't exist. He exists. The other gods are just demonic entities. This is the God. The eternally existing God. And then verse 15. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh. So this is not the verb, but the noun Yahweh. The God of your fathers. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob has sent me to you. So now he connects back to the forefathers. And this is the same God who called Abraham and said he would give them, give Abraham the land and the descendants and the seed that would bless the whole earth. So here's the connection to God's name. This is about as close as we can get to figuring out what Yahweh is. Again, liberal scholars will debate this and say, no, that's not true. It's just a Canaanite God that the Israelites ad- adopted when they came into the land. Even though if we take it literally here, but they don't take the Bible literally. Uh, Yahweh is mentioned very early in Scripture. So the idea with Yahweh is always existing. This is the God that exists. The God who is there, I think, was Francis Schaeffer. Is it the God who was there? Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There. Which means if he's always existing, he has no beginning, no end, and he's ever-present speaks to so many of his attributes again, his, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his power. This is the being that has always been there, always will be there, and ever is. So you see that in Revelation 1.8, describing Christ. I think there's a, a connection that the Hebrew reader, at least when they, the Hebrew Christian, when they read Revelation, would have thought back to God's name and, and Exodus. This is Jesus talking his first words here in Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So that's the first and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Says the Lord God. And look at all the titles here. Alpha, Omega, Lord, God. And then who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That whole sentence is just describing names and titles of God. Which then applied to Christ. He's applying them to himself. So who is, who was, and who is to come ties back to this idea in Exodus 3, 14, and 15. I am who I am. Jesus said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see this idea that God and his name here is revealing something about himself, his existence, his eternal existence. And again, that ties back into apologetics as we were just talking about. He has made that known. If you read Romans 1, he's not just made known that he exists, but he's made known his divine attributes. Not Yahweh. It's not like every unbeliever knows the name Yahweh, but they know God exists. And Yahweh is the covenant name. He gives Israel that covenant name to call him by because that is his name and it describes his existence. Okay, I don't know if you can see this. It's kind of small, but if I blow it up, it gets more blurry. 
Since I didn't make it, I, maybe somebody can make a better one that's bigger. So where do we get the name Jehovah in many Bibles until recently? Uh, or Jehovah's Witnesses? Or whenever Jews today speak of God, they don't use the name Yahweh. They use the name, Hashem, the name. They don't believe in speaking the name Yahweh. So there's Yahweh on the left. And it's translated in most translations until the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, translated it Yahweh. In most modern translations, it's Lord in all caps. Lord in all caps tells you that's speaking of Yahweh. Lord with the first letter in caps and then the rest normal, that's the title Adonai, which will come to as a name of God, a title of God. So the HCSB did that and now the LSB because the, the HCSB dropped it. They went back to Lord in all caps, and they called their newest version the CSB, and it's selling because they put pretty covers on it and so on. But here's Yahweh on the left, and Adonai on the right. Adonai is a title for God. It means Lord. Not Lord in all caps, just Lord. Well, the Jews at some point, between the time they come back into the land after exile, and the time that the Masoretes write, what was that, late 100s, 200, Masoretes, Masorites? When they put all the little points on the bottom, that's what those are. Those are vowel points. Somewhere in that few hundred year span, they start to believe that it's wrong to pronounce the covenant name of God. And they still hold that today. Orthodox Jews will not pronounce Yahweh. Some Christians think, oh, if you pronounce Yahweh, you know, they're going to stone you or something. No, it's not like that. They just think it's not reverential to God. It's a tradition. Obviously, because we don't see it in the Bible, right? In fact, how many times? 6,800 times. And guess what? They're reading the Bible a lot, and they're reading it publicly a lot in the Old Testament. So there's no command you can't pronounce the name of God. In fact, he told us 6,800 times that that was his name. So what they did when they're putting down these vowel points is write down the tradition that had developed. So when you come to Yahweh, you don't read what's there you read Adonai, even though it says Yahweh. And the thing that reminds you is that the vowel points are the same as Adonai. So you get to Yahweh, you recognize that Yahweh, you see the vowel points, and you say Adonai. So it's combining the consonants of Yahweh and the vowel points of Adonai. And then later, in the Middle Ages, and then going from Latin to German, they say, oh, the way you pronounce this name of God is, according to the vowel points, Yehovah. Yehovah. And then when it comes into German, you take the Ya and you make it a Ja. Instead of Jesus, you make it Jesus. Ja. Jesus. So, how do you say it? Jehovah. And then the English comes along, which follows the German, and they're not going to be the first ones to change it, even if they can read the original Hebrew. And so they're just going to stick with Jehovah. And that's how it happened for a long time. So uh, if we sing, maybe even today, something about Jehovah in a song, it's not heresy, it's not a, necessarily a sin. It was the best they could do at the time. So a lot of old hymns were developed after the King James. But Jehovah is not the proper pronunciation. It's Yahweh. Which kind of is funny because you think of this cult, Jehovah's Witnesses. And they built a whole cult around, you know, you got to say Jehovah. And if you say any other name, you're, you're heretical and you're not, part of, you're not part of the saved. And they've got it wrong. 
So, yeah, there's a whole video out there. If you go and uh, look up the LSB, Legacy Standard Bible, and Yahweh, there's about a 22-minute video where Abner Chowan and another professor there is talking about why they went back to the translation Yahweh. Now, in the New Testament, Lord is used in the place of Yahweh. So that's another argument people have. Well, let's not use Yahweh because even Jesus and the apostles cite from the Septuagint, which is in Greek, and the Septuagint translated it as Lord, which is closely connected to Adonai. Well, they were using the Greek translation. So you want to quote the Bible, you quote it accurately. But in the Hebrew, it's still Yahweh. They weren't erasing God's name from the Hebrew scrolls. They just put some different vowel points on the bottom. Okay, a little nerdy, geeky side tour there. All right, let's talk about some of the compounds real quick. So you can have compounds kind of like we have, you know, middle names or we have junior or senior on names. This tells us more about the person. So Yahweh, Tsabaoth. So this is how you say it. And I'm really stretching out the T here, but and it's literally Tsabaoth. And in English, we drop the T and it just becomes Yahweh Sabaoth. Not Sabbath. Sabbath doesn't have the O sound at the end there. Sabaoth. This is Yahweh of hosts. We've seen that already in the text. We saw it last week in the sermon when Paul quotes from Isaiah. We saw it, I think, on Wednesday night in Joshua. Yahweh of hosts. A host is a great army. And this is the angel armies. You know, two angels went in and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah through God's power. Imagine a whole host of armies. That's very frightful. And that's what's coming back at the end times to destroy all unbelievers. So Yahweh of hosts. Isaiah 6.3. This is used a lot in the Bible to just speak of how powerful God is. Let's look at Isaiah. This is the famous section here of Isaiah. And he walks into the temple and he's unclean. And the seraphim are, are flying around God. God is on his throne, his train, his robe fills the whole temple. Isaiah realizes he's a sinner and the seraphim have to cleanse him. But look at what he sees here. He's describing what he saw. Verse 3. One seraphim called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth. God's name with a modifier, with a compound here, Yahweh of armies. He is holy. The holy, mighty God who is the commander of all the angel armies. Yahweh Yara, Yahweh will provide. Yahweh will provide. We won't look at all these, but that's in Genesis 22, 14. I think he's talking to Abraham there. Yahweh will provide. Yara has to do with provision. So these tell us about who God is. They tell us about his perfections, who he is, his nature, his being. Yahweh, Rophe. Yahweh, your healer. Now the charismatics really love this name. And, and they'll say Yahweh, Rophe or Rafe. Um, talk a lot about Yahweh, the healer. Now, this is the name of God. He is a healer. Yahweh, Nisi. There's some people named Nisi. Anybody heard of anybody named Nisi? Just me? Yahweh is my banner. Yahweh is my banner. This is God describing himself to his people. Again, look, Exodus 15, Exodus 17. He really wants that generation coming out of Egypt to know him. To fully know him so they can rightly worship him and follow him and obey his commandments. And he reminds them of who he is. 
and he adds these compounds to his name to say, I'm the one who will heal you. You, You're going to fly my banner. I'm with you. I will provide for you. I have all the armies. You should fear me, not others. This is a fun one. Yahweh, Makadish Kim. Now, I did not get a chance. I know the book doesn't go into a lot of details on this, and I only cited this one. I didn't get a chance to see how many times this is used in the Old Testament. Somebody needs to do further research on this. It takes a lot of research. Because if you, if you just go into your Bible software and click on one part of the name, it just looks up that part, Yahweh or, or Makadish. So this means Yahweh who sanctifies you. And it's only used, I think, this once or, or a few times. And what we have to do is, in Hebrew, you just add things to the end of the word or at the beginning of the word to say what it means. So you would be built in, the, the Kim at the end is you. And so that's, that, that's all we have, Yahweh who sanctifies you. I think that's really neat. It's not just Yahweh who sanctifies, but this compound here is Yahweh who sanctifies you. It's very personal. Yahweh Shalom, you probably heard of that. Yahweh Shalom, Yahweh is peace. This isn't just peace from war. It's, it's giving fruitfulness. It's the idea of God is taking care of you. You don't have to be anxious There's peace, yes, in your home. There's peace in the nation, but peace in your heart because you're at peace with God. The New Testament picks this up. And even Paul says that we're justified. We have peace with God. Yahweh, Sidkenu. Sidkenu. Yahweh is our righteousness. Yahweh is our righteousness. And again, the hour is built into the end of it in Hebrew there. So if it's only used here or a few other places, and, and it's always our righteousness, again, I think that's, that's really neat that it's our in there, and, and God who sanctifies you and our righteousness. He could have just said, my name is Yahweh righteous, or Yahweh is righteousness. But he says, no, he is our righteousness. We already did Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh Shema. Shema means there or in that place. So Yahweh is there. What does that mean? You're always there. You have to look up the Ezekiel context. It speaks of the temple and the millennial kingdom at the very end of Ezekiel there. And he's saying Yahweh is there. Yahweh will be there with his people. And so he's just always there. He always exists, but he's especially with his people in the place that they are where they worship him. Okay, real quick. El Eloah Elohim. Anybody? You probably heard these, right? Elohim. Now, again, sometimes people go too far into these names and try to build their theology around it or say, oh, look, it's, this is Elohim, and it means this, and you can prove the Trinity here in Genesis 1, and they kind of build this theology that's not in the text from God's names. That's not what God is giving us his names and titles for. It's so we can know him better, but know him rightly, not just make up some strange things about God that aren't in the text. Or maybe true things that are revealed later in Scripture, but aren't in the text. So there they are in Hebrew, going backwards, of course, because Hebrew writes backwards. Well, they wouldn't have thought that, but we do. El is just a general word for God. It's like our English word God. We, you don't think about that growing up. You think God is God. That's his name. Actually, it's a word for a deity in the Anglo-Saxon. So they had other gods before they learned of the true God. And it's the same here in the Middle Eastern world at that time, the ancient Near East. El meant God. Could be any God. 
be the God you worship, the God the Israelites worshiped. El is just God. It really, though, focuses on power, might, and strength. So the word focuses on power, might, and strength. And if you're talking about the God, then he has obviously ultimate power, might, and strength. So the true God, usually in Hebrew, will have the article, the God. Really clear. Not talking about any other God. We're talking about the God. The only true God. So sometimes there are going to be adjectives associated the faithful God. The eternal God. The living God. El is the word there. Eloah is just another form of El. It's usually used in poetry. I don't know if that's for rhyming schemes. There's still people studying all of this. You know, as we get computers, we can look at this more often. But it's used 40 times in Job, four times in Psalms, Proverbs 35. Sometimes in non-poetical books, but it's usually in songs or prophecies that are set aside in our English as poetic. And there those are there. If you look those up, those are Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. And in the other ones, there are prophecies or prayers. And so there seems to be some poetic beauty in using Eloah as opposed to El. I'm probably not putting the right emphasis on the right syllable there. Is it Eloah? Eloah? Eloah. Yeah, I think it's on the last syllable. All right, I'm going to leave you with this one because it's controversial. And just get it in your head. We'll talk about it next week. Elohim is the plural of El. Elohim means gods, and it's used of God, or other gods, 63 times, 11 times to speak of God, Yahweh. I don't even know if I get that right, 11 times. Seems like it's more than that. But anyway, how can the one true God use the plural for gods for his name, for his title? For that, you've got to come back next week because we're already over time. So it's very interesting. And I'm going to tell you how not to use Elohim because people use it wrongly to make certain theological arguments. Lord, we thank you for today's class, just to learn about you, God, to learn about your names, to learn about who you are, how mighty, how powerful, how you've made covenant with your people, both in the old covenant and now in the new, and you've revealed yourself to us. So we thank you for that, Lord. Let us grow in our knowledge of you so that we might worship you aright and obey all that you tell us to do. In the name of our Savior, amen.